Nature's Archive Podcast, a Jumpstart Nature production. Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative nature advocates and naturalists on the planet. If you have a fascination with nature and ecology, this podcast is for you. I create this podcast as a personal passion, and it's my desire to turn it into something even bigger. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. Today, my guest, Dr. Stuart Weiss, tells us about an amazing and unexpected series of discoveries that connect cows, cars, and conservation, all triggered by the study of the threatened bay checker spot butterfly. These discoveries have had reverberations across ecological circles and have led to amazing conservation successes, despite a senior U.S. Air Force official calling the tiny butterfly a national security threat. Before we get into that, a bit about Dr. Stuart Weiss. Dr. Weiss has a Ph.D. in biological sciences from Stanford University and is the founder and chief scientist at Creekside Center for Earth Observation. He has over 50 peer-reviewed publications and has wide-ranging research experience in conservation and population biology, microclimate characterization, and statistical analysis. Today's episode begins with a bit of background to set the stage, describing the land where these discoveries occurred, what makes them unique, and then a bit about the bay checker spot butterfly. This butterfly has been in decline for decades, first due to direct reduction of habitat due to development and invasive non-native plants, but Dr. Weiss's systematic studies showed that something else was happening, leading him to unravel the mystery, revealing an unexpected relationship between cars cows, and the checker spot that we discussed today. Dr. Weiss's work also showed that landscape and population connectivity was a critical and missing component. This was at a time where connectivity was not well understood, and even today, policymakers and the general public is often unaware of how important it is. Ultimately, the story of the Bay Checker Spot and the cascade of conservation discoveries and actions is an amazing success story that continues to grow even today. I promise you'll learn a bit not only about the checker spot, but also soil ecology, the nitrogen cycle, the nuance of land management and grazing, tule elk, and much more. Note that there was a little bit of scratchy audio at a few spots, but please stick with the episode. We got it worked out. And lastly, I expect to release an episode specifically covering wildlife connectivity and wildlife crossings in the next few weeks, as well as another episode that will deep dive into soil ecology. So if you enjoy those aspects of today's story, stay tuned for those upcoming episodes. So without further delay, Dr. Stuart Weiss. Stu, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we're going to focus on a really amazing relationship between the Bay Checker Spot Butterfly and the Majestic Coyote Ridge and all the different points of interest that connect those two. And I'm really looking forward to getting into it because this, this is a topic that I can literally view right outside my back door. I can see Coyote Ridge from my house. So I'm super excited. But before we get into the main topic, I'd like to hear a little bit more about you and where you grew up and how you got interested in nature. So I grew up in suburban Philadelphia. And the event that really set my course was Earth Day 1970, when 20 million Americans showed up and said, we're tired of dirty air and dirty water and you need to do something about it. I was 10 years old at the time. And my dad was an anti-Vietnam War activist. So I kind of had the activist gene and culture in my family. You know, I pursued biology in high school. And then I had the chance to come out to Stanford in the fall of 1978. And I got a work-study job. My first work-study job was in the second basement of the engineering building studying sewage water because that's what was available. But then I had the opportunity to join Paul Ehrlich's lab as a lab tech in the winter. And then in the spring, I found myself out on Jasper Ridge Biological Preserve chasing checkerspot butterflies through fields of wildflowers with like the classic butterfly net. And all my friends were like sitting in a dark lecture hall and econ one with other students. And there I was running around in the California spring doing what turns out to be very serious scientific research. So I, I got hooked really fast. And how was it that you got connected to Paul Ehrlich's lab? Yeah. So I was, everything converged really nicely for me to get a work study job in his lab. It turns out his mother was my brother's Latin teacher 
in junior high school and was also very good friends with my grandmother. I never underestimate the power of a little family connection there. I was like a mere undergrad field helper in the lab. And you know, Paul is definitely a very kind of distant professor for a lot of people. But then that first summer, I was able to get in on going to Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory in the Colorado Rockies. And there, I actually got to know him a lot better than most people would, because we're up in the Rocky Mountains in a small lab out doing field work and long time driving and you know, he's it's absolutely brilliant and articulate. So was that experience at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory, was that the key then to get you the field research gig that you had on Jasper Ridge? No, it's the other way around. I, I started on Jasper Ridge in the spring, and then in the summer, I went out to Rocky Mountain Biological Lab. And not to brag, but on that first day, I caught more checker spot butterflies than anybody in the crew. So I got off to a really good start. Uh, so that uh, got his attention? <laughs> yeah, I, th I think it got his attention enough that it got the job in Colorado. I did that for three summers. And was his lab specifically researching the checker spot? Yeah, that was his kind of first study organism. And he made a science reputation in butterflies. And the act of just going out and picking some kind of random butterfly and start looking at its population structure, its population biology, not because it's a pest or it's particularly stands out, and then see what you find. That curiosity-driven research that seems to be really downplayed these days. But you know, as you'll see, it's just turned into this scientific gold mine where you know, by really delving into a single species or single organism and its habitat, a lot of very general phenomena become apparent and they get documented in the scientific literature. It's just overall, again, it'll become clear that the bay checker spot butterflies is like my science and conservation muse. It's what I always go to when I need to think about an issue that somebody brings up. It's like, how does this apply to the Bay Checker Spot Butterfly in my experience? Interesting. So it's the lens through which you find all of these other rabbit holes to go down. Yeah. yeah. Follow the butterfly. Follow <laughs> the path of the butterfly. So then I suspect that the Bay Checker Spot is, and we'll talk a little bit about the Bay Checker Spot and its biology here in a bit, but the, that's what led you to Coyote Ridge. C can you connect those dots for me? Yeah, sure. So we had been working at Jasper Ridge, which is really only about 20 acres or so of serpentine grassland habitat. That's where the classic long-term studies were. Then we started doing some work out at Edgewood Park, a little bit north, and that seemed huge where we have 40 or 50 acres of serpentine grassland and a much bigger checker spot population. And then the after I graduated, one of the guys I worked with in the lab um, had gotten a call saying, oh, we found bay checker spot butterflies down here while doing surveys for a large proposed landfill. So they called him and I ended up starting to do a lot of the field work. So I first set foot on Coyote Ridge, I think it was in February 1984, and it was just a revelation. Because instead of having this massive 50 acres of serpentine grass, there were suddenly like thousands of acres. We, had, we didn't have any idea when we first went out there just how big it was until we brought out the geologic maps and realized the scope of it. And it also had this incredible amount of topography. There's about 300 meters, about 1,000 feet of elevation and it's all cut up by these canyons. And the canyons create opposing north and south-facing slopes. Some of the slopes are ridiculously steep, and you'll almost fall off of them. And I took a couple of nuggets from some research on Jasper Ridge about the importance of topography and how south-facing slopes get a lot more solar radiation 
than north-facing slopes. And that affects the phenology, the timing of when butterflies fly and when plants flower and senesce. And it had been described at Jasper Ridge, where we finally suddenly had this area where you could just really get at it because it was so densely occupied by bay checker spot butterfly larvae and adults. It was really dense. So we had the opportunity. And the second year I was out there, I started pulling up samples of caterpillars from different slopes and weighing them. And the caterpillars on the uh, south-facing slope were 250 milligrams. And the ones about 100 meters away were only 50 milligrams or 25 milligrams. They're just tiny in comparison. And then we just started monitoring how fast the, the caterpillars grow when they come out as adult butterflies and how their host plants, the plantago erecta, the dwarf plantain, flowers and dries out, and how the relative timing of those is what's driving the population to go up or down. And it's mediated by topography because you get like a four or five week difference between those opposing slopes of when the butterflies come out and when the plants dry out. So it's all mixed up on a really fine scale. So kind of took that description, just all these studies we did that It was 1985 when we really did that. And I got a paper published in like the top journal, Ecology. It was part of a series of papers that came out in the 1980s and really defined this. One of the cooler experiments we did, we'd collect caterpillars, put little dots of paint on them in a code so we could recognize individuals. We'd let them loose. And then we'd come back a few days later and see how far they moved and how fast they grew. And we found out that, A, we could predict the mass gain by looking at what the solar radiation on that slope was during that period. It was a lot faster on a south-facing slope than on a north-facing slope. Then we also found out that these little guys could crawl like 20 meters a day when they set their little ganglia to it and and actually move from move off the steep north facing slope into an area where they can grow a lot faster so they can get a jump on the plant and have higher success of their offspring because most of the mortality takes place in the spring when the plants are drying out you have these tiny little caterpillars that just hatch that are like desperately feeding on the plants as they're drying out. And the vast majority of them die because of starvation. We were actually able to like really document that well enough to get it published in really the top ecological conservation journals. That's There's a lot of branching points here, I think. And I want to maybe back up a little bit. You said this was 1984, right? 84 is my first encounter out there. 85 is when we started doing more of the research. Okay. And at that point, was it understood that the Bay Checker Spot was in decline or threatened? Oh, yeah. That, yeah. That's a part of the story. It's really important. To get to. Thank you for bringing that up. That was another formative moment in my life is that I was out at a serpentine outcrop near Kenyatta College. We called it Woodside. And collecting butterflies to try to do an experiment on why did they choose the plants that they choose to lay their eggs on. And I happened to be out there the day that they were bulldozing the habitat for a housing development. So I literally got bulldozed off of the habitat. And I think this was 1980. Paul actually quoted me in his book, Extinction, that was published in 1981. And there I was, wow, I made it into a book. Exciting. And at that point, he and Dennis Murphy, who was his uh, grad student and uh, postdoc at the time, petitioned to get the bay checker spot listed as a threatened species. Because we really thought at the time that these small populations on the peninsula were like the heart of the distribution. But then it turned out we had this kind of behind private fences, massive population down on Coyote Ridge that we had gotten access to finally because of the landfill proposal. And 
that really broke open the science I was describing, but also the conservation opportunity. Hey, nature enthusiast. Do you want to be part of something bigger? Well, we're building a movement at Jumpstart Nature, and we've just added some new volunteers to help with our podcast and website. But this means our costs are going up too. I need to purchase software licenses to give them access to the production tools we use. For example, one media editing license costs $21 a month. And this is where you come in. Please consider supporting our mission by contributing to Jumpstart Nature through our Patreon or direct contributions, or even purchasing some logo merch. Check out all these options at jumpstartnature.com donate, also linked in the show notes. Not ready to make a financial contribution? Then please share this episode with three friends. Sharing what we do is actually one of the very best ways you can help us. Thank you all for your continued support. And you mentioned that the Bay Checker Spots larval food plant is the Plantago erecta. Can you tell me a bit about that plant and where it's found? It's the most important plant in the world, of course. <laughs> and it's actually a native California grassland species. It likes really thin or disturbed soils. And it used to be like everywhere in the grasslands. So California grasslands have been massively transformed by the non-native or you know, introduced uh, annual grasses and then all the weedy forbs that came along with those. So that species like Plantago erecta became restricted in, in terms of on moss, onto really nutrient-poor soils like serpentine. So that's where we find the extensive stands. Plantago erecta now is really only on serpentine soils because they're resistant to the invasion of the introduced annual grasses. I had no idea. I had thought that the Plantago erecta was adapted to growing on serpentine soils, but you're saying that actually it used to be found more broadly, and it's the fact that the serpentine soils are nutrient-poor that allowed it to yeah. hold out there. Yeah, and there are ecotypes of Plantago erecta that are more adapted to the serpentine soils than the more fertile soils. It's really fascinating adaptations to serpentine soils. Been a really big aspect of kind of plant ecology and plant evolutionary biology. It's been a big subject matter for that field. And yeah, there are a series of species that are really endemic to serpentine never find them off serpent. So as far as conservation value goes in terms of you know, unique species, serpentine is like one of the real hotspots. So then by extension, if I were to magically transport myself back 300 years, would I find the Bay Checker spot off of serpentine areas, like in, in other locations? Yes, I will say almost definitely you would that there are a few places like on San Bruno Mountain that aren't serpentine, where there are still a few stands of like multi-acre stands of Plantago erecta, but it's the like thin soils up on the ridge top that again they're just not fertile enough to support the really dense swards of the annual grasses. But yeah, I, I think you would have found that the Bay Checker Spot might have been one of the most common butterflies in the Bay Area pretty much all the grasslands. I know up on Coyote Ridge, they can really be at least some years profuse, like yeah. everywhere you look. So yeah. that wouldn't surprise me with what you're saying. And then back in that like 1984-85 timeframe, did ecologists, biologists, did you have a general sense that, I'm assuming you already knew that there was this relationship between Plantago erecta and the Bay Checker Spot so were you seeking out serpentine soils at that point, or was this sort of the moment of reckoning where you realized how important it was for the butterfly? No, we, we had known that before. And then over the course of the next five years or so, we investigated a lot of serpentine outcrops, especially on the west side of Santa Clara Valley and the Santa Cruz Mountains. And... Yeah, you know, we're able to see where the butterfly had naturally occupied it. And there were some recorded extinctions. And, we, and one of Paul's grad students was able to infer that they gotten recolonized from this massive population on Coyote Ridge. 
so then this trigger was the the proposal to build a landfill and was there a regulation or regulatory requirement to go and and survey the land first is that what yeah yeah. because the bay checker spot was a candidate species and remember this was like the reagan administration and they stopped listing species but it had legal status as a candidate because you have to treat it as something to be concerned about you know we did our surveys and we found that the landfill was going to take out a few hundred acres of you know really nice serpentine habitat out of thousands up there but because of the topography they were mainly on the south and west side of the ridge and the butterflies were so much more abundant on the north and east side of the ridge so we worked out a deal where waste management would set aside about 267 acres on the northeast side of the ridge, and then they would be able to develop their landfill on the southwest side of the ridge. And they would fund the monitoring and the research. But most importantly, they went to Washington, D.C. and literally lobbied to have the butterfly listed. There's this great story that ended up in the Wall Street Journal and some other media where the company that owned the land to the north was United Technologies Corporation, big defense contractor. They're the ones who used to be you know, doing ground tests of rockets back behind uh, the ridge there. And they just had this knee-jerk reaction. It's like, oh, endangered species, we've got to fight it. So we had to set up between the good garbage company and the evil defense contractor. And it was just like, journalistic cuisine to be able to just set up this opposing stories with the poor innocent butterfly caught in the middle of it. And one of the great ironies of this lobbying was that the lobbyist that waste management had hired in Washington, D.C. was Howard Baker, who was of snail darter fame. He's the guy who said when he was a senator, we got to have this dam and we'll overrule the Endangered Species Act as it applies to the snail darter. And it was really a big deal back in the 80s. But he ended up lobbying for the listing of the Bay Checker Spot Butterfly, supported by waste management. And another thing that came out of this, there was a letter from the Undersecretary of the Air Force to the Secretary of Interior talking about how the Bay Checker Spot Butterfly could be a national security threat because it would stand in the way of development of these important nuclear delivery systems. And I'm like the 20-something-year-old hippy-dippy biologist just watching all of this and coming out of a peacenik background. It was just pretty amazing to have a front-row seat to this kind of wheeling and dealing and the act of conservation policy. It really made a big impression on me on how do you navigate that? I'm thinking too about how the comment of the checker spot being positioned as a national security threat the hyperbole and the kind of propaganda and all of that tied into that sort of statement would really be eye-opening, I think, for someone in their early 20s. Uh, Oh, yeah. But do you have a sense for why waste management was keen to to advocate for this? Yeah, they wanted their landfill. They would get their deal in, which was acceptable to them. It was a minor capital cost to them. They get in on the ground floor and get their deal grandfathered in. It was all the people coming behind them, but the next group of people who'd have to deal with the consequences of having a listed species. So this, the ridge, you painted a bit of a picture of Coyote Ridge being a serpentine grassland with these steep canyons. And and by the way, to me, when I first saw it as a layperson, it looked pretty homogenous. It just looked like a grassland. And and yeah, there are those ridges, but I, I wouldn't have even thought that that would be important. So that's an interesting tidbit that I've learned over the years. But can you tell me a little bit more about the ridge, where it's located, why, you know, this was obviously important that it had the Bay Checker spot, but I know it's important for a lot of other reasons as well. Yeah. So the ridge lies in Southeast San Jose. It's one of the largest serpentine outcrops in the Bay Area. And 
it's on the frontier of the suburban sprawl, especially the north end of it. And it's just like this wonderland. It, it doesn't look like anything when you're driving by on Highway 101. It's just kind of this barren looking ridge. Although if you look closely, don't take your eyes off the road too much, but if you look closely in a good spring, you'll see, you know, there's patches of yellow and purple up there. But until you like get out and get on the ground, you don't realize that it's like more wildflowers than you ever could have imagined in one place. And it just goes on and on for miles up and down canyons. And it's just like the diversity and the colors are just absolutely mind-blowing. Um, and the way it changes through the course of a season and from year to year and from slope to slope, I, I, I'm just always, every year, I'm just absolutely transported at some point by the beauty of the flowers out there. There's different flowers coming into bloom on different slopes. You get these amazing combinations of colors, and it's what I call the coefficient of beauty, being very scientific about this, which you know is that kind of buzz you get in your visual system when you're just in a place that is just overwhelmingly colorful and beautiful. And we actually uh, came up with some scientific terminology for it, of course. We call it I sub B. Because beauty's in the eye of the beholder. That works. That's something that made it out of the field. And you can get the feeling, if you read some of John Muir, you know, when he gets into these kinds of places, he just starts describing it. And I know exactly what he's going through. We actually have a couple of John Muir quotes that uh, Craig Edgerton had dug out about walking along Coyote Ridge back in the 1868. You know, as a, as a place to conserve, it's just such a no-brainer. I mean, you get people out there, and it's, of course we have to protect this, because it's the most beautiful wildflowers I've ever seen, and it's like right here in our backyard, and there's thousands of acres of it. I know, and it's unfortunate, as you described, when you drive by on the US 101, which is a highly trafficked road, you can't really see this. You, it, it just looks like grassy hills. And and it is, it's so amazing when you get up there. It's like, really, this is what it looks like up close? I had no idea. Yeah, I had a hint of it. I think it was in 1983, I was on the way back from Botany Field Trip to the Pacific Grove Museum. They were having their wildflower show. And we're just driving back up and I'm looking over there and I go, is that really purple and yellow I'm seeing over there? It's like, no, I must be tired. And, so, and then the following year when I got up there, it's, yeah, it really is. You have to be looking for it and, yeah. and at the right time. So you described that this is sort of on the edge of urban sprawl in San Jose, which is a pretty sprawly city. And San Jose is also part of what a lot of people know as Silicon Valley, as well. So you have this sort of dichotomy of nature next to technology. But I know that Coyote Ridge is also interesting because of its proximity to Coyote Valley and the Santa Cruz Mountains. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've learned and discovered over the years in in that respect? Yeah, yeah. So it Coyote Ridge is at the edge of, you know, this massive open space in the Mount Hamilton range. So you go east, there's hundreds of thousands of acres of open ranch land. A lot of it is now conserved. And it comes right up to Highway 101. And then we have Coyote Valley down below it. And then over on the west side, the foothills of the Santa Cruz Mountains. So it's one of the few places where there's a chance for wildlife to get from Mount Hamilton Range into the Santa Cruz Mountains. It's not an easy journey. You have to go through culverts and risk being on roads and stuff. But you know, it's really one of the last wildlife linkages. And over the years, there's just been all these development proposals in Coyote Valley. So back in the 80s, I think it was... Apple and Tandem Computer wanted to put in a huge development down there. In the late 90s, Cisco wanted to put their world headquarters right down there as part of Coyote Valley Research Park. And then in the mid-2000s, people were pushing to have a city the size of Mountain View developed on the valley floor. 
And one of the things I noticed is that every time a Coyote Valley development started getting some momentum for the de development, the economy would crash or there'd be a tech crash and the plans would you know, go away for a few years. So I just thought that was an interesting leading economic indicator. Kind of wish I had based my stock investments on that. But, <laughs> yeah, the, the connectivity aspect is really interesting. Circling back to Coyote Ridge, when these discoveries were being made, who owned land on the ridge back at that point? Like most places, it's a mosaic of ownership. Waste management leased land from Castle and Cook. Castle and Cook is like the land holding arm of like Dole Pineapple, out of the area owner. A little further north was United Technologies. A little further north, you had, it goes by various names. Now it's known as the Young Ranch, then the Richmond Ranch. And then at the very northern end, we have the Silver Creek Hills. So, you know, they're generally large parcels. But yeah, it's an array of different ownerships with different interests and objectives. So then at this point, when the deal was struck with waste management, that was the first land that was set aside for conservation up there. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 So now you have a little bit of a foothold for the Bay Checker spot. Exactly. Yeah. I forget the exact timing on it. But yeah, it was not protected at all. And frankly, for almost 15 years after we worked out the landfill deal, just there was very little formal conservation up there. To this day, cattle grazing is an important part of Coyote Ridge. I'm wondering if cattle grazing was occurring back at that point. So back when we were really getting going, the land was grazed. We got to know the ranchers uh, a bit, and we realized that they were absolutely essential to conserving this place. Some Stanford scientists had fenced off an area to do a big nutrient addition experiment in the, I think, 1985. And the area that they had fenced off, like in two years, was this incredibly dense sward of Italian ryegrass that like wasn't supposed to be there on the serpentine soils. And nobody had figured out why it's happening. But the simple empirical fact came to us like, we got to keep the cows on here. So that became like the major conservation management recommendation. And if I could interrupt real quick, you, you say that the Italian ryegrass like shouldn't have been on the serpentine soil. Is that back because the serpentine soil shouldn't, the, the nutrient requirements of Italian ryegrass were greater than what serpentine should be able to provide? Yeah. 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 Italian ryegrass likes a rich environment, especially when it grows that dense. And then it forms a really dense thatch that smothers out all the little wildflowers. So it like outcompetes the wildflowers and then smothers them. So then you observed that where the cattle were grazing, the, the ryegrass was not growing as thick, the thatch wasn't forming. It was yeah. thus allowing the Plantago erecta to sustain. Yeah, just all the wildflowers. The contrast is really quite striking. And the reason for that is cows eat grass. That's what they do. And the Italian ryegrass is like the best forage grass out there. You know, I'd learned that the rancher's goal was to remove as much of the grass in a given year as possible without trashing the place, which was exactly our goal. So we, it was just really easy to interact with them and just have a mutually acceptable arrangement. The question then was like, why is this happening? And why aren't we seeing it up at Jasper Ridge or at Edgewood or these other serpentine areas? That's when I'd gone back to graduate school. So I spent 10 years working on the research staff at Stanford. Then I went back to graduate school at Stanford to get my PhD. And I was sitting in an ecosystem ecology class, and the professor, Peter Vitusik, gave a lecture about something called dry nitrogen deposition. And it was like the light bulb went off in my head. And I think it was the magnitude of the Las Vegas Strip by the time it was over. And I made all the connection because I'd been staring up at this smog cloud for about a decade at that point. 
point. And then it just suddenly a few back of the envelope calculations. And it's like, yeah, that's a lot of nitrogen coming down. And that was the moment when I knew that this was an amazing connection here. It took me about five years to bring together all the threads of evidence and teach myself enough about nitrogen. Uh, nitrogen's a really hard subject. It's a really slippery biogeochemical cycle. It takes a while to get facile with it. And then I published a paper in 1999 that described the phenomenon. Uh, it's called Cars, Cows, and Checkerspot Butterflies. And it, it's become a bit of a citation classic at this point because I had made a really direct connection between the nitrogen deposition and the loss of biodiversity. So the nitrogen, you mentioned it's coming from smog. And from reading your paper, most of that smog is automobile emissions. Is that right? Yeah, the majority of it is. It's every every source is contributing. But yeah, in the Silicon Valley, it's primarily uh, vehicular traffic. So then this light bulb moment in the lecture, did, did you stay after class and talk to the professor and be like, hey, I've oh, got yeah. this idea. I've, I've seen this. Because yeah, he had been one of the professors who was working on that nutrient addition experiment. So I went up to him afterwards and I go, Peter, you know why? I now know why the grasses came in so strong in that experiment you guys did about a decade ago. And then he sent me off to go talk to a civil engineering professor who was specialized in air pollution. And then I just started following all the threads and developed enough of a knowledge base to write a scientific paper and get it published in conservation biology. So I'm, I'm interested in maybe some of the mechanics of the study and also a few things. So were you able to actually measure nitrogen content in the soil to, to validate that the deposition was occurring at the rate that, that you had prognosticated? Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. The paper was much more bringing together the threads of other people's research. They had done all the nutrient addition experiments showing that nitrogen is the limiting factor for the grass growth. Phosphorus helps a little bit, but it's primarily nitrogen. The fact that nitrogen deposition happens was well established. And it's just you know, really bringing together and synthesizing a lot of other people's research rather than going out and doing it myself. Now, a little later, I was able to do some of those kinds of studies. Uh, we can talk about that after the big conservation moment that grew out of this. So I published the paper in 1999, right when there was a proposal for the Metcalf Energy Center, 600 megawatt gas-fired power plant, kind of smacked at the north end of Coyote Valley, right next to Tulare Hill, which is a serpentine outcrop. And it's a large source of nitrogen oxides. And as I found out, ammonia, it's a point source. And because my paper had come out, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the California Energy Commission told Calpine, the proposers of the power plant, that they had to do something. We have to mitigate for this somehow. I remember I went to a public meeting and I got up and I you know, just said that their analysis that they had was really superficial and not adequate. So then they like took me outside and they, they were like, if we're doing such a bad job, why don't we hire you to do it? And I was a little skeptical at first, but I figured, hey, this is an opportunity here. So I got involved with Calpine and was a project scientist working with them, the Energy Commission and the Fish and Wildlife Service to work out some mitigation. And then we ended up working out some mitigation that was mutually acceptable all around. There were two intersecting interests here. One is Calpine really wanted to build this power plant because it was like the first new combined cycle gas-fired power plant in California. There hadn't been one built for decades and it's a new, modern, highly efficient power plant. And it was coming in right when we were having the, the electricity crisis and all of that stuff is coming to a head at that point. You know, they were willing to put out extra money as capital costs for a half billion dollar project. So we had this intersection of interest. They really wanted the power plant. 
And we're willing to put out a lot of extra, what seemed to me a lot of extra money, but it's a half billion dollar project. $10, $20 million extra for mitigating was part of the capital costs. And uh, they were willing to do it. And we really wanted a precedent for mitigating for nitrogen emissions because we figured we could start leveraging that. So that went through. In 2003, we had this ceremony dedicating the Metcalfe's Energy Center Ecological Reserve. This was quite a scene. They they had already flattened the pad for building the power plant. So it's like this flat, barren place, little dust devils going by. And they put up this tent where they had the ceremony and they put out a red carpet and people were showing up. We had a congresswoman, Zoe Lofgren, was there and just all these you know, big wigs. And I got to give like a 10 minute spiel about, you know, why are we here? And what's this nitrogen issue? And what's the butterfly? That was, that was really, really cool. So we had the precedent. At the same time was when Highway 101 was being widened from two lanes in each direction to four lanes in each direction. And they were like, just about ready to open it up. And the Fish and Wildlife Service said, hey, wait a minute here. You have to do something because you're going to be increasing the nitrogen sources right at the base of the ridge here from all the cars going by. And also, it's a big growth-inducing impact. But they worked out a deal. Eventually, I think it was like about 600 acres of land was set aside. But it was also the they made a commitment to enter into developing a regional habitat conservation plan. So this was back in 2001, that there's a biological opinion, which is an official U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service document that said, you will do this amount of mitigation right up front, but you're going to have to develop a regional habitat conservation plan. Just to fill in maybe a couple things there. So when the Metcalf Energy Center, when they agreed to mitigate That is separate from the 600 acres that Valley Transportation Authority is mitigating? So the mitigation for the Metcalf Energy Center turned out to be 131 acres of habitat conserved, which means it was bought, deeded over to a conservation organization, and there's a conservation easement on it. They already owned 116 that came with the power plant site. But they had to get 15 more acres over on Coyote Ridge because they were having an impact on Coyote Ridge and they needed to do something over there. So this was yet another little foothold over there. That's where this crazy distorted land value market kicked in because the only willing seller was Castle and Cook. So Calpine ended up having to pay like $27,500 an acre for this little parcel of 15 acres because Castle and Cook was the only player who was willing to sell land. Supply and demand at work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So after the Metcalf Energy Center came in two more power plant projects, one in the city of Santa Clara the Donald von Reisfeld power plant, and then the Los Esteros critical energy facility up in Alviso were being developed. And they followed the Metcalf Energy Center model. We got another 80 acres on Coyote Ridge for that. But then it was the Highway 101 mitigation that really blew open the gates. Because now we're talking hundreds of acres plus the potential for a regional habitat conservation plan. And that's all all because of the discovery of the impact of nitrogen deposition on the soil. Yeah, that, that was the major nexus. Yeah, it was, uh, that paper generated about $700 million worth of mitigation when you had up all the projects. That's amazing. The development of the habitat plan was a bit convoluted. We had the biological opinion. Around 2003, 2004, they realized, the governments who had agreed to this realized that, oh, we signed on to this thing. We'd better get going on it. In 2005, they had signed a memorandum of understanding that laid out, we're going to do this habitat conservation plan. In the meantime, I got together with my environmentalist friends, the California Native Plant Society, Committee for Green Foothills, a little coalition of groups. And 
we started taking people up to Coyote Ridge to see it. Like it, in 2003, I invited all of the elected officials in Santa Clara County to come take a tour. And we had it set up so they would show up. We'd shuttle them to the top in our four-wheel drive vehicles up in a nice gnarly dirt road. And we'd have them for a few hours. We'd feed them like this gourmet lunch. Then we'd send them on their way back down the hill. And it was transformative. We ended up with some real champions in the elected bodies who realized that, hey, we're Santa Clara County. We do things right. And we made this obligation. Like One person who was a surprise was, at the time, he was uh, County Supervisor Don Gage. He was like the one Republican on the Board of Supervisors. But because of his role in negotiating the Highway 101 deal, he felt a deep commitment to seeing this thing through. We had the tours. I nicknamed it Operation Flower Power. <laughs> so in 2005, they signed the MOU, and then it became just this kind of policy mill with the consultants and the partners and the staff working out the details of the plan. And in, I think, 2011, they came up with a draft plan 2,000 pages, landed with a huge thud, garnered some opposition because of its size, and ramped it back a little bit. And during that same time, we had done another round of Operation Flower Power, getting people up to see what was going on. Because there had been like one or two generations of elected officials who had gone through, so we had to re-educate people mm -hmm. about why are you doing this? That was, again, the environmental groups, the Committee for Green Foothills, Greenbelt Alliance. We got a small grant from the Moore Foundation. I was at a event at the Moore Foundation with the project manager for the Habitat Plan, and we're there with the head of the Bay Area program. And we started talking, and he said, basically, we, we asked the Moore Foundation guy, can we get a small grant to fund this grassroots organizing? Because the project manager realized we had to have pressure from the bottom. At the same time, the Fish and Wildlife Service was playing the heavy with the regulatory side. And the plan got voted in with all of the elected bodies. In a couple of cases, it was close, but and then in 2013, we had a celebration of the implementation agreement, and that was the birth of the Valley Habitat Agency. And it turned out they got to work really fast. First really big conservation purchase was a Coyote Ridge Open Space Preserve, which was the old UTC land that was like 1,860 acres, most of it serpentine grassland. That was just north of the mitigation lands that the Valley Transportation Authority had set aside. And that UTC land, that was like buffer for where they were doing their testing? Yeah, they shut down the facility in the 90s. It was just too close to San Jose. Yeah, it was a surplus land. They got the purchase, the acquisition. And yeah, now next year, I think it's going to be open to the public. You know, one thing that piqued my interest in this story is the discovery that grazing is helpful. And I know that a lot of would-be conservationists, when they hear about grazing, sort of have an immediate adverse reaction to the concept. Uh, so I really like that about this story because it demonstrates uh -huh. the, the nuance, the fact that what works in one circumstance may not work in another or vice versa. Uh, so I'm curious about how the grazing is managed so as not to cause a detrimental effect on Coyote Ridge. Yeah. Okay. So the grazing management, we work with two ranchers up there. They have to graze really large areas because it's not highly productive land. And we found out that it's very self-limiting, that they're removing the grass biomass and when their cows stop gaining weight, they move them somewhere else if they can, because it doesn't make any sense for them to have their cows out on these rangelands that aren't providing them with enough grass to grow or maintain weight. So that part was actually really simple. And we've learned over the years to just really trust the ranchers so that 
It's not like this real prescription. And that's the worst thing you could do would be, say, put your cows on this date and pull them off on this date. Because you know, we have such wild weather fluctuations in California that every year is different and just requires a different timing. So that was like a really happy finding. And you know, we discovered that pretty early on. The land that was set aside for the Kirby Canyon landfill. There was one year where we were out there. It's looking like it's getting a little hammered here. And somebody called the rancher and he had already taken his cows off for the reasons I just described. And we've also found that having a diversity of grazing regimes works out there. Winter, spring, summer, fall, or spring, summer. They all have different effects in different years. And it's really unpredictable what's going to be the best one in any given year. So just give the ranchers some flexibility. I mean, they're in a really tough place trying to make a living off this really flashy environment. That's interesting. I had just assumed there would have been some more prescriptive approach to prevent too much compaction or manure accumulation or, you know, whatever the the problem might be. So that's interesting to hear. And I'm wondering too, there's a couple herds of elk that uh, are on the ridge. Are they substantial enough to make a difference or help? I mean, do they even eat Italian ryegrass? We're blessed on Coyote Ridge to have elk. They, back in the seventies, California Department of Fish and Game had released like 20 Thule elk on the Hewlett-Packard Ranch, which is the next ridge to the east from Coyote Ridge. And they started moving over to Coyote Ridge, and we started seeing them on a regular basis. They eat grass. They can't be controlled like the cattle can. If you've ever seen a fence necessary to contain tule elk, you'd understand why they can't be controlled. There's a really There's a fence at San Luis, a national wildlife refuge that's keeping the elk in there. It's 15 feet tall, really strong. But what we found out is that the elk and the cows very peacefully coexist, that the elk will follow the cows around because after the cows graze, there's all this fresh growth and that's what they're really after. Very nitrogen rich. You know, it's really good forage. It's like a mini Serengeti system that way. And I have a photo that shows, you know, three elk cows and three elk calves standing like right next to two cows and a calf of cattle. It's, they're just not, they're not abundant enough or controllable enough to use to maintain the habitat, but I'm sure glad they're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of the allures of the ridge, for sure. Yeah, it's just breathtaking when you see this herd of tule elk, and then you're looking down on Silicon Valley in the background. You know, I think the tule elk are an amazing conservation story. They had been reduced to a handful of individuals in a swamp near Bakersfield in the 1870s. And Henry Miller, who owned the San Joaquin Valley at the time, decided to keep them secret and letting them breed. And since then, they've been reintroduced in a lot of places around the state. So statewide, there's 5,000, maybe 10,000 tule elk are established in various herds. And we have herds of 50 or more elk running around on Cody Ridge. And I think there's about 500 in the Mount Hamilton range. So the work I did on Coyote Ridge and some work that was done in vernal pools in the Central Valley with grazing established that moderate amount of grazing is actually really essential for conserving biodiversity on serpentine grasslands and in vernal pools, which have a lot of endangered species too. And that was like the scientific basis for the formation of what became known as the California Rangeland Conservation Coalition, which came out of ranching community and the conservation community got together and decided to work on the 90% of things that everybody agreed on. And it's become really powerful because there's been a real turnaround on grazing management because the, the California grasslands are what we call a novel ecosystem. It's a mix of native and primarily non-native species 
that you know requires some amount of grazing to just remove the grass biomass. You go into areas that aren't being grazed, and it's the thatch just starts building up. That and it's just been observed in a lot of places. So now grazing has taken a uh, really important role in grassland and rangeland management because it's really the only way to control the annual grasses over large areas. The fact that. So much of California is being fertilized by smog means it's even more imperative in places downwind of urban areas and large agricultural areas. That's a really good point. The novel ecosystem concept is a reminder that we've already disturbed (laughs) the ecosystem. And to push back against that disturbance, there has to be additional management. And in this case, the management is through grazing. Yeah, there's just no other way to control the grasses at a landscape scale that we've been able to figure out. You can't burn on a regular basis. And even that just has transient effects and costs a lot. These are annual grasses, right? Yeah, there's annual grass. Yeah. And I wanted to maybe tidy up a little bit on this, the broader implications of this discovery that that nitrogen deposition was having this impact. I'm assuming that serpentine soils aren't the only soils that are subject to this problem. Have you seen this sort of research and application in, in other soil types or other circumstances? Yeah. So when I first got into it, one of my Stanford professors, this is Hal Mooney, directed me to a woman, Edie Allen, at UC Riverside. And it turns out, not surprisingly, UC Riverside is a major center for research into air pollution effects on ecosystems. So they have documented that the nitrogen allows annual grasses to get into the coastal sage scrub, which has a lot of endangered species in it and transforms it via fire into non-native weedy grassland. It's really well known in Europe. That's where they first discovered it. So they have studies showing that the species loss from grasslands is directly proportional to the amount of nitrogen that's being dumped on it. It's getting more traction in the U.S., at least in the scientific community. There's not been the kind of concerted conservation action like we have in Santa Clara County yet. I wish there were because it's at, in California, I'd argue in some parts of the state, it's as a big or bigger threat than climate change is. It's here, it's now, it's been a long-term cumulative process. And there's a lot of imperiled plants that depend on very open habitat and get overrun by the grasses. One of the side effects that I'd really like to try to get more attention on is that single biggest allergy problem in California is annual grasses. You know, they produce pollen and high fraction of the population is really miserable in the spring. The nitrogen deposition makes for more grass growth, which means more pollen. Even if the grasses can't grow more because, say, it's a dry year, they put all that what we call luxury nitrogen into making more pollen. So the tagline here is that nitrogen deposition really is something to sneeze at. And it's just on a global scale, the nitrogen cycle is probably it's more disrupted than the carbon cycle is. And we see the effects with coastal dead zones, all kinds of air pollution and water pollution problems, harmful algal blooms. And yeah, it's really out of control. And it hasn't gotten the attention it deserves. Yeah, the the framing, comparing it to the carbon cycle is a good one. Yeah, I, I, I go carbon, carbon. I'm just so sick of hearing about carbon. Nitrogen is way more screwed up than carbon is. Well, and there are so many of these instances, too, where I think that in the media or in society at large, we've been so focused on certain problem spaces. And you know, I had a guest on the podcast a while ago talk about shifting baselines. And that's oh. sort of, I think, what we're talking about here in a way. Yeah. If, so, someone with your experience on the conservation side and the science side, I think you have a really interesting perspective. And I'm wondering if you could just snap your fingers and magically impart one ecological concept to help the general public 
see the world as you see it, what would that be? This came out of the checker spot work with the topography that there's a huge amount of climatic variation in complex terrain. And there's all these little nooks and crannies that will allow species to persist in landscapes far beyond what their the sort of general climate would allow. So there'll, there'll be a moist north-facing slope that's collecting a lot of water, and that's where the redwoods will hang on to the very end. And that climate is a really complex mosaic on the ground that's not necessarily well characterized by what we measure at weather stations. That's one thing. The other one is that smog is fertilizer. You know, and it just has pervasive effects on ecosystems. And when you see that brown cloud hanging over San Francisco Bay, you just need to realize it's not just a hazard to human health, it's a hazard to a lot of rare species. And then I think the last one is that it, you know, it's just really important to get engaged. The science doesn't speak for itself in the conservation world. You really have to push it out there and work really hard. But it's not well rewarded in traditional scientific careers. I think those are all good ones, and they all speak to the nuance as well. Do you have any upcoming projects that you would like to highlight? Any papers coming, anything like that? On the nitrogen front, we found that the springs coming out of the serpentine on Coyote Ridge and Tulare Hill are just loaded with nitrate that the atmospheric deposition is flushing right through the system uh, because it's so saturated. So we can actually measure that. That's a project that, that kind of have enough data now to uh, publish a paper on it. It's pretty high priority. We're doing a lot of butterfly and plant reintroductions or population augmentations. So some of these you know, highly endangered plants need a lot of help. So we raise seeds in our Creekside Science Conservation Nursery, and we seed them out into appropriate spots. And we've been able to save one species, this little species, the San Mateo Thornman, from extinction because of those efforts. Is that documented on the Creekside Science website? I can point people yeah, out? Yeah, we, you know, we, we have a few news items about that. I'll make sure to include some links. Oh, uh, another project that's been a long-term ongoing one, a great link to it. It's called the Bay Area Conservation Lands Network. And this is like looking at 10 counties around San Francisco Bay and seeing what land's protected, what it contains, where are the priorities for acquisition and management. And so I guess I call it an implementation of this 30 by 30 idea, conserving 30% of the landscape by 2030. And we did the math and we discovered that we had 30 by 20, that there's such a strong land conservation movement in the Bay Area. We're like ahead of the curve compared to the rest of the country, which is a great place to be. And that's uh, www.bayarealands.org. And if people want to follow your work, where can they go? Yeah, we have a website, creeksidescience.com. Keeping that up to date is sometimes a bit of a struggle because we're so busy working on the rest of things. But it's a lot of news and publications. It's about time to do a major revamp of the website, but who knows when we'll get to that. Okay, well, I'll be sure to include links to everything that you mentioned in the show notes. And before we go, is there anything else you'd like to say? I look forward to talking again and getting out in the field this spring. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you so much for all the time you spent today. Well, thank you for putting together this podcast series. I've really enjoyed the other ones that I've listened to, and I feel really good about being a part of it. Thank you for the kind words. Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. As for today's episode, let me know. Did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch, too. 
And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work. So please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature podcast. We just completed our pilot season, where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring, and even reached number three on the Apple Nature podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support. So check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you. Thank you.